Welcome to the True Story London podcast. I'm Michelle Toth. In this podcast, we listen to a true personal story told live at one of our shows in London, followed by a conversation with the storyteller about their background, process, story themes, and more. Today's storyteller is Ayanda Tambo, sharing her surreal experience of receiving a prestigious award from a prominent yet divisive public figure. Ayanda has such a measured and wise outlook on the events of the story, the wider social context, and her own future as she steps into the working world. Stick around afterward when we dive deeper into all of these topics and more. But first, let's listen to her story recorded live at 21 Soho. earlier than this, on a Monday evening a few weeks ago, I was walking slowly over a 16th century Persian carpet in a large room with delicately gilded ceilings. I was making my way, mouth wide open in shock, through a parted crowd towards a slightly disheveled 57-year-old man smiling at me, holding a glass award engraved with my name. I should probably mention that the crowd was mostly made up of fellow nominees for the award, given by a charity called the Alexander Paul Foundation, to an intern thought to have demonstrated creativity, leadership, and other similarly admirable qualities. Our internships are part of a program called 10,000 Black Interns, which aims to give black students and recent graduates in the UK a foot in the door in the field of investment management. My mouth was wide open in shock because I was completely gobsmacked that out of 29 amazing nominees, somehow I had won. I should probably also mention that the large room with gilded ceilings was this pillared state drawing room in number 10 Downing Street, and that the man presenting me with the award was the father of six... MP for Uxbridge and South Ryslip, an arts and crafts enthusiast, (laughs) Boris Johnson. Now, to explain how I met the Prime Minister, I probably should rewind a little bit. I'm currently in my third year studying philosophy, politics and economics at King's College London. My campus is less than a mile from here, but due to a certain uh, global public health crisis... I spent most of my first two years studying at home, doing online school, struggling through Microsoft Teams during the day and contemplating deleting it from my laptop and chucking the laptop outside of my window at night. By the time the academic year was drawing to a close, I was determined that I would find something to do, like perhaps an internship for the next summer. My only problem was that I had no idea what I wanted to do as a career. The one conviction I did have was that I would never, ever touch anything vaguely related to financial services with a 10-foot pole. My mother works in a very specific area of tax law and compliance, and therefore I grew up with the firm belief that all financial services-related careers were deathly boring. My leftist sensibilities reassured me that I was making the right decision by not selling my soul for a paycheck like the boys on my course who show up to uni every day in dress shoes and a suit to manifest their future CEO fantasies. You can understand, therefore, 
why it took me a while to come around to investment management. I spent a few months considering countless options, PR, public policy research, management consulting, doing a master's, I don't know, anything. But nothing seemed to feel like the right fit at the time. I slowly began to notice myself becoming interested in stories about the economic effects of the pandemic, however, and especially about the rise of so-called stay-at-home stocks in equities markets, companies like Zoom or Peloton that had received unexpected boosts from the pandemic. I also began to not only listen to, but actually quite enjoy discussions on CNBC or Bloomberg about macroeconomic trends or central bank decision-making. <laughs> At the same time, I attended some online career events that began to dispel some of my previous assumptions. I learned that finance isn't just for mathematicians or computer scientists, and that many employers were looking for an academically varied entry-level intake, and that there were also tons of roles that didn't just involve sitting at a desk and crunching numbers all day. Eventually, I came across the program that evolved into 10,000 Black Interns, and I gave the application my best go. I got through to the interview stage, and a few weeks later, I received an offer to start at an asset management firm for six weeks in June 2021. I surprised myself, and absolutely loved my time as an intern. Apparently so obviously so that my enthusiasm prompted my employer to nominate me for the Alexander Paul Award. Now, when I received my invitation to a reception to celebrate Black History Month at number 10, my first thought was that it had to be a fake spam email. <laughs> Hear me out. The image used of the British coat of arms at the top of the email was blurry. In an official Downing Street email, I don't know, anyway. Um, <laughs> clearly, I was wrong. The email was real. And about a week later, I was shaking the hand of the Prime Minister. In the following days, pictures of me and descriptions of the event were all over Boris's and Downing Street's social media pages and were met with some very angry and quite racist responses in the comment sections. I know, surprise, surprise, Tory comment section, racism, wow. Um, <laughs> Where is white history month? Some asked. Oh, black this and black that, load of bollocks, another comment read. I'm hearing a seal barking noise when I see this, was another remark about my aforementioned open-mouthed, shocked reaction to having won. The backlash was unsurprising. But it was also a sharp reminder of many of the contradictions my journey with 10,000 Black Interns has brought to mind. I was obviously very honored to be invited to Downing Street and to be recognized among my peers. And I'm very excited about the beginning of my career and about the efforts investment management is making to become more diverse and embrace sustainable investing. I also still think, however, that our current economic systems will never ever deliver true racial, socioeconomic, or environmental justice, and that more black and brown faces on investment teams or green financial products cannot change this alone. I was also made quite uneasy by being quite obviously tokenized by a government that has been repeatedly refused to condemn England football supporters who boo players who take the knee in it as a symbol of opposition to racism. 
A government whose prime minister once compared Muslim women wearing the burqa to letterboxes. And a government occupied by a political party whose policies of austerity in the last decade have often hit working class people and people of color the hardest. I am of the opinion that celebrating Black History Month with a room full of entrepreneurs and finance interns was a deliberate political choice. The event definitely felt like we were chosen because we represented a form of blackness acceptable within the boundaries of Tory ideology, especially the emphasis of the contribution to the, ma the capitalist market economy as a marker of human worth. Now, perhaps this is a rather unsatisfying end to maybe quite a glamorous story, but unsurprisingly, I don't yet have conclusive answers to the dilemmas I've raised in the last couple of years. How do I identify the right path to take in life? What's the right choice between principles and pragmatism? More and more, I'm starting to accept that this choice does not have to be a zero-sum game. The reality is, the current political and economic systems we have are the ones we have to live in, and wanting things to change doesn't exempt me from the necessity of participating in society and moving forward with my life. I'm a young woman pursuing a career that I believe will stretch and challenge me, provide financial security, and perhaps most importantly, make me happy and excited to wake up in the morning and go to work. However, I believe I can also strive to be unapologetically true to my values wherever I go. Representation is not meaningless, and I think I'm okay with being used as a photo op for Downing Street. If somewhere, a young black girl sees that photo and begins to believe in herself and the places she can go just a little bit more. If young people like myself don't enter these industries with the intention of being change makers and using every opportunity we have to turn the world into the place we want it to be, others will with the intention of maintaining the status quo and helping no one but themselves. One of the founders of 10,000 Black Interns, Dawid Konateo Hulu, always says that the unofficial motto of the program is lift as you climb. And I hope to do exactly that. Thank you. Ayanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So Ayanda, how does it sound to you listening to your story back after so long? It's been about a year and a half. Um, it's very interesting to hear the place I was at then in my life because it seems so far away, even though it was, it's not that long ago. And I can hear the nervousness in my voice that perhaps reflects the uncertain for the changes that were about to occur in my life, for leaving my academic career and venturing into the adult world. Yeah. And how has it gone since you left uni and are now working? Can you catch us up on what you're doing now? For approximately nine months, I've been working at an investment management firm. I've been lucky to find somewhere where people are open and friendly. I think financial services and especially investment management has a very dog-eat-dog, cutthroat reputation. And it's been sort of invaluable for me to start out somewhere where that isn't the case, that isn't the culture, because I... I think it would have scared me off, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I know. And this is something that you and I share. I also found myself unexpectedly in investment management. Mm -hmm. For me, it was well into my career, but I never thought I would work in finance. Right. And then you discover that there are pockets of the industry that are actually 
pretty great places to work with terrific people and amazing opportunities. Yeah. And I think people don't realize that they exist. And I'm so glad that you're giving us an example. I wonder if we could just talk about the decision to tell this story, because it was something that had happened relatively recently at the time of telling. It was just such a big deal. I mean, it was a big award, an important award from an important organization. And then it was recognized in such a big way. Mm -hmm. A couple of things stood out to me. The way that you were surprised, like didn't expect to be singled out among this group of 29 of your peers and the significance of the 10,000 black interns. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the organization. Absolutely. It sounds like it's been pivotal in you understanding or knowing about this opportunity to step into your, what is now your career. Yeah. So 10,000 Black Interns started as 100 Black Interns. The founders are all senior-ish figures in the investment management industry, some of which are Black, some of which are not. And in 2020, they kind of got together and were talking amongst themselves about, man, like all of this activism is going on in the world. George Floyd had died that year, so had Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey that same year. And they were looking around in their own spaces and kind of thinking, what can we do where we sit to make a difference? And they looked at their own industry and thought, man, like we are still a long way from having a population within our industry that is reflective of the broader population, of having diverse figures in all sorts of positions in investment management. Because I think the industry does better with having diversity in sort of back office positions, legal operations, compliance. You'll see HR, lots of women. When you go onto the investment side, when you look among portfolio managers, traders, the numbers drop way low. And those are the very high earning, influential positions. Absolutely. And it really skews everything about how those firms run when the representation and the diversity is only in certain roles and not in the roles that really run the place. Absolutely. And so they looked at the industry and said, look, if we're being real... The investment positions are still all filled by old white men. So what can we do? So they thought, we're going to create this scheme where we want to take a 100 kids, just a 100, and put them in six-week internships in investment management firms, in investment team roles. And the only thing we're requiring from the firms is give them a shot for six weeks. We are not stipulating that they have to hire them back. Just give them a shot, give them a foot in the door for six weeks. So they started by asking around, asking peers, asking friends, hey, you run X fund this place. Will you or your firm take one person for six weeks and pay them the London living wage? And some firms said, we'll take two. Some firms said, we'll take three. More than 50 firms signed up. Then it was 100 firms. Then it was 200 firms. In the end, the first cohort was 500 people when it was meant to be 100 originally, because other peers of theirs in the industry were also searching for ways to make a difference. They just didn't know how to get started. And once the opportunity arose, they held on to it. I can imagine that this was the intersection of at least two big things. Mm -hmm. One is just talent is so important in this industry. Mm -hmm. So finding the best people is a high priority, has been for a long time. Mm -hmm. And the other one is what you mentioned about it being the year of George Floyd Mm -hmm. and so much loss, so much horrific experience for the community. So Mm -hmm. how much was the enthusiasm to get involved to do something you think at the intersection of those things or something else or 
I think the founders were prompted by those events that year. I think the horror of some of those incidents in 2020 made people look inwards and think, I may have good intentions myself, but if I sit here and do nothing, like how, how much good is that? And so I think it meant that that year, diversity and inclusion and, and issues of racial equality were on everybody's minds. They were in the news. They were in boardrooms. Every company was being required by the public to come forward and, and demonstrate what they had decided to do. And by their employees. It was so mm, intense inside companies mm-hmm. because employees were so hurting. Yeah. And they were really pushing for yeah. something must be done. We must actively do something. Mm-hmm. So I have to imagine there was some pressure too. Oh, yeah. And it was the beginning of the pandemic. And so the backdrop was so odd and strange. Oh, yeah. And then this trauma was so big. Absolutely. I'm just remember reliving it. It was so <laughs> it was so intense. Yeah. I think it prompted people's sense of humanity and made them think, gosh, like I can be touched by stuff like this, even if it's not in my backyard. When I see something so horrific happening to people, it makes me think about what I'm doing in this world to make bad things better. Once you commit, let's say you're a firm that committed to 10,000 black interns in year one, it's not going to look great if you don't take another intern next year. So even if there's not that same push happening, it made a difference that it only needs to get started. And firms found that they were impressed by the talent pool. Um, And so there were not just moral imperatives to keeping it going, but also business imperatives. It's nice when the self-interest fuels the moral imperative Mm -hmm. too, because it really reinforces the issue of staying power and Mm -hmm. sustainability of these types of efforts. Mm -hmm. Like I say, the first cohort was 500 when it was meant to be 100. And so they got together and thought, what if we make our goal to put 10,000 kids in internships over a span of five years, which means that we have to cover like 3,000 people a year for the next five years or thereabouts or slightly more. And it then expanded beyond investment management. And so now there are countless industries involved with employers that range from the NHS to Google and Apple to Goldman Sachs to JP Morgan. And so the aim of the program is to now, by 2026, five years from the first cohort, to have put 10,000 students through internships. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And now, actually... What's also started is that the same foundation has started a similar scheme for disabled students. So students with disabilities that may not have access to a lot of careers or even knowing yourself that you are welcome or are are capable of entering those types of spaces. They want to do that for students with disabilities. I mean, in in 10 years, the program potentially could have put 20,000 kids through internships, which is the goal. Fantastic. So, Ayanda, when you ultimately made the decision to go into investment management, one of the criteria for making this decision was about how happy and fulfilled you would be and how much you would look forward to your day at work. Mm. And I loved that assertion of like how, Ayanda, my experience matters. Mm -hmm. And I can be in a position of offering representation. I can affect change and lead and be an activist. Mm -hmm. But I also am an individual who wants a good job and perhaps financial security and perhaps options in the future. Mm -hmm. So I loved that assertion. I thought that it was, it reflected like a balanced view. It's very telling that the the people we expect 
to make life decisions based on broader societal feelings or moral imperatives are the members of certain oppressed groups, are the people who care the most about certain issues, and that people look down on people within certain groups for choosing their individual interest, whereas no one holds members of certain majority groups or the people with power to the same standard. No one tells the guy who went to Eton and went to Oxford and then went into investment banking that he shouldn't be a fund manager and that he should have chosen to be an activist. No one says that to him. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and they should, because he's he's the one who has been exposed to power and has had the most influence throughout his life, perhaps. You know, that's not always true. But you kind of have to as an individual, make your own decisions and, and choose the place in the world that makes most sense for you. I think. Sure. Yeah. And are you seeing any examples of people like the Etonian that you just mentioned, <laughs> whoever that fictitious um, avatar is representing? I'm curious if you're seeing examples of people who are stepping in and engaging and helping. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can think of two people, actually. One is one of the founders of 10,000 Black Interns. His name is Jonathan Sorrell. And he is the president of a firm called Capstone Group. And he, I think, is the one who came up with the initial idea for the program and approached some of his friends in the industry with the idea. But like, you know, he's an older white man who felt like there was something that he had to do and felt like he had a role to play in making, you know, a a change and improving things and making the industry more diverse. And so I think he's a great example of how you don't have to be a member of a certain group to advocate for people. Mm -hmm. You You, can be an ally. Right. You can be an ally. And sometimes it's most important that you you have those allies, because when he goes into a room with his peers and says, hey, will you take an intern? Maybe they're more likely to consider it and, and think of it in a different way because he's like them And he's thinking of this issue in a certain way and trying to do his best to help. Mm -hmm. If like another person that has a similar background to him sees him doing his best to help with the issue, they might think, oh, okay, well, someone like me can contribute too, right? Yeah. And the second person that I, I thought of is a woman called Helena Morrissey, or I should say Baroness Helena Morrissey now, <laughs> who's one of the first female fund managers in the UK. And she is a really good representation of pursuing a life path that is different to what was perhaps traditional for women. Um, She has nine children and she has had a very successful fund management career. And when she had her fourth child, I think her husband became a stay at home dad. And it was the decision that he would, you know, put his energy into looking after their family and her career would be the, the career that would be prioritized And so she came to speak recently at my firm and she was talking about how that's not always been taken well by other people. Yeah, Like one of the audience members asked how she's dealt with maybe like people judging her for not being a present mother or also some people would think or because he basically said that his wife, who is a working mother, gets side eye and sort of judgment from other moms at their kids school and like oh we saw your husband at the parents evening why weren't you there that type of thing and she was basically saying to him that tell your wife that those people are always going to think like that and she knows what is best for her family and she knows what she's doing for her kids and those people don't matter and you you have to lead your own path so she's really inspiring in terms of shaping a different kind of life 
for women in the industry. Absolutely. And just underscoring the critical decision of who your life partner will be. Absolutely. So someone who can actually meet you and assess together like what's best for our family. Mm-hmm. The nine children is remarkable. I mean, <laughs> she laughed about it and kind of said, oh, yeah, I knew this would come up. I always get this question. And I was kind of thinking, well, it's on your Wikipedia page. Yes, so, yes. <laughs> I mean, and when you see that number, everyone's going to think, oh, my God, like um, her and her husband have balanced that and they've, and they've made no it work doubt. for them. You know, there, there's people in the world who just can for some reason do yes. it all yes. like they just yeah. figure it out yeah and I've always hesitated to comment on what seems to make life balance mm-hmm. possible because mm-hmm. I don't have children and mm-hmm. so I feel maybe I shouldn't make observations right. but I think some of the skills that makes you excellent in the workplace would make you excellent at running a family, like right. running a household, having a partnership right. that works. Right. I have no idea what their family yeah, no, life is like, I, yeah. and I'm not commenting on it, but it just doesn't surprise me that someone who can have nine children right. would figure out how to do it well. Right. Like, for example, like in the workplace, you have to prioritize. You have to make certain decisions about what you can and you can't do. Um, She talks a lot about how she technically was eligible for nine years of maternity leave. Oh my gosh. (laughs) She did not take nine years of maternity leave because imagine what that would have done to your career, having to basically pause for a year nine times as you're trying to make your way up professionally. And so for her, that was a decision she made that she was not going to take the full advantage of what she was allowed. And she was at peace with that in terms of, you know, this is a decision I made because this is the shape I wanted my career to take. Um, She's very inspiring to me. I'm so glad you have those examples so early in your career. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about this moment, this night of this award. Mm. And you were surprised to receive it. And you had this like push-pull of, oh, this is quite an honor to be recognized in this way, Mm -hmm. to be honored in the company that you were in that evening, Mm -hmm. but then also to feel, as you described it, like the obvious tokenism. Mm -hmm. Now you're a year and a half out. How are you reflecting back on that experience that night and then the immediate aftermath? Even from the moment that I got the invitation, I kind of thought, oh my God, this is cool. This is an honor. At the same time, Downing Street is not just a representation of the government, it's a representation of the people who sit in the government, right? You're going there to meet certain people and they Mm -hmm. aren't just theoretical figureheads like the Prime Minister. It's like you're going to be there socializing with Boris Johnson and Tory cabinet members and that sort of thing. So I was very conscious of the fact that I was making an active decision to go there. I considered not accepting for what, like, like a little 30 second moment. I was like, what if I just in protest, I don't show up. And then uh, my rational brain said my mother would kill me. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So then obviously we get there and it's a super crazy process because you have to bring your invitation to prove that you've been invited. You have to bring a form of ID. They bring the fuzzy emblem invitation (laughs) on my phone actually. And I printed it out. Yeah, so I could see the fuzzy coat of arms in expanded uh, size. And then when you enter the building, there's a staircase with a portrait of every prime minister, I think, since, like, I don't know, 1900. Um, I've seen Love Actually. Isn't that on the... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Precisely. And so I was, like, walking past David Lloyd George and, like, Harold Macmillan and Theresa May and thinking, this is really a strange place for me to be in right now. And... 
The moment was amazing because I didn't expect to win. And then the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson at the time, reads my name and I walk towards him and there's all these photos and we stand there and like for the photo op and hold the award together. And he like says to me quietly, oh, um, yeah, this uh, is a very heavy award, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, I guess it's made of glass. <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, you know, if you if you maybe had an intruder in the night, you could sort of bash them over the head with it and I was like yeah yeah I guess I could (laughs) okay that was my conversation with Boris Johnson oh my goodness (laughs) so weird (laughs) like of all things I expected to discuss with him it really wasn't that well, like earlier in the night all the interns were herded into this room to wait for him to come out and he's exactly how he was like how I expected him to be like from TV but I, I don't know why I expected him to be different like in person he'd be somehow more regal and statesmanly no he comes out and goes around the room and asks us oh what are you doing oh private equity oh brilliant okay uh, and then he tells a story about how he says oh when I was your age, I, I wanted to work in finance. I wanted to, you know, be the next Bob Diamond. And I, I got a job at one of the, like a small boutique firm. Uh, but I was rubbish. And, you know, I had to leave uh, because, you know, I wasn't any good at it. Um, and I guess he thought this was a really funny story. But I was looking at him thinking, you probably got this job from an Oxford peer of yours. Probably one of their dads owned this little firm and you got this job. People would have died for and then you weren't any good of it at, at it, um, and now you're our prime minister, and so it didn't land in the way that I think he he thought. I was hoping you'd be able to tell us something that was a little different than the public persona that you're describing. But yeah, I I'm not sure how much involvement he had with the organization of it. I think it seemed like the idea was pitched to him, like oh, you show up and you give a speech and read the award, and then he disappeared. But I I, I guess then. The pictures get out and I was not surprised by the sort of backlash. Because when have you ever seen Boris Johnson in the Tory party celebrating Black History Month? Like, I had never heard of that before. We all know that they held this event and put it on social media because the Conservative Party doesn't have a great reputation with racial equity or diversity and inclusion and all of that. And we also all know that they wouldn't have held their receptions for black artists and creatives, for members of the hip hop industry or dancers. Or It was very obvious that we can showcase these people because they align with our values, right? Mm-hmm. So that was weird because... While it was a good thing, obviously, um, all of us would never have probably had the opportunity to go to Downing Street. And again, the whole issue of seeing yourself in someone or even seeing the things that you are capable of, I'm sure for so many of my fellow nominees and for me too, kind of like, oh my gosh, you put these institutions on a pedestal, right? Some It's untouchable, like I can't get there. And 10,000 black interns brought 40 black people into Downing Street for the evening to drink wine with the prime minister. 
And that is cool. I think there is value in that and in the fact that maybe when one of my fellow nominees, like when we're unsure of ourselves in our career, and you can think about that and think, okay, well, if I've been in that space, then who can tell me that I don't belong in this one? That is so well said. Yeah. No, it's a difficult balance to strike Mm -hmm. with all the complexities that you're describing, that you've described so beautifully and effectively in your story and that you're telling us about now. And I, for one, am so glad that you accepted the honor (laughs) because what I can see from where I sit, the idea of you being able to do both, like have a great career for yourself and be able to use it as a platform to bring about some systemic change, Mm -hmm. maybe some organizational change in Mm -hmm. your smaller organization. It just seems like that's possible for you times Mm 10,000. You're part of systemic change by being part of this organization. And you're going to find that those other 29 nominees and the other interns that you met through that program, you're going to fan out. Some of you will be in the the industry. Some of you will be elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But if you stay connected, Mm -hmm. you'll basically be able to do that lift as you climb Mm -hmm. and mass. Mm -hmm. That's going to be so amazing. I can't wait to follow it. I've met some really amazing people who were part of the program and the thought that like maybe they wouldn't have gotten some of these opportunities without this program is insane because these firms would have been missing out on amazing people and so I have no doubt that they'll go on to do amazing things and that we all will go out to do amazing things. Yeah. What are you thinking of for yourself, Ayanda? Do you have long-term plans or do you just take it day by day? I have no idea, (laughs) which perhaps is not what you're meant to say. But I think I saw a study recently that talked about how people in in Generation Z or even millennials are like the idea of staying in the same field, staying in the same job. We're not as beholden to it as people used to be. Some of the jobs that our generation are going to be doing towards the end of our career, some of them don't exist yet. So I think the opportunities are endless and we don't even know what some of them are yet, um, which is cool. But at the same time, I also enjoy my job. And there's a lot of people at my firm who kind of like stay there for 30 years and have been doing the same thing. And if you ask them, they still love it. So it's odd because I could see myself flitting around and trying all sorts of new things and being involved with a new progression in the industry or in the world. But I could also see a happy path for myself where I stay in this field and I stay in this position and that is where I find happiness. And so I don't know which one of those it will be yet. Well, I can't wait to watch and see what you decide to do. Thank you so much for sharing more of your story with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about today's storyteller and conversation, check out the show notes. The True Story London podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Toth. Our producer is Ellis Ballard. Our theme music is by Sea Noise. Live recordings were provided by Laughing Around and recorded at 21 Soho. More information about our live shows and workshops can be found at truestorylondon.com. And just one more thing. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It really does help us to reach more people. Thanks, and we'll see you for another episode soon. Hold up. 